we are back. Uh, welcome to the Emory Digest podcast. I'm your host, Chuma Obineme, PGY6 fellow at Emory University Hospital. Uh, I will be joined by my co-host, Dr. Jason Brown, in the more exciting part of the podcast. Uh, so if you're joining us for the first time or repeat listener, every month we review recent guidelines and reviews in the field of gastroenterology and hepatology and discuss the more salient points via the use of clinical cases. Uh, today we have a great episode for you, but before we get to the show, I have to make a pitch. Uh, if you like the show, if you're listening as soon as they come out and you have not left a review, there's a lot of you guys out there who haven't, uh, please go to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you leave reviews, leave one, you know, and let us know how you like the podcast. Um, and as usual, um, please, please, please read the guidelines because, you know, while we can get to some of the aspects here, um, the guidelines really go into to great detail and the ASG has really done a great job with this one. Uh, so with that, let's get to the show. Welcome to the Emeroid Digest podcast. Uh, we have a fantastic guest with us, uh, Dr. Bashar Kumseya. Uh, so he is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Florida in Gainesville and the director of endoscopy at UF Health Shands Hospital. Uh, he is a board certified in internal medicine and gastroenterology and holds a master's degree in public health from Harvard University. Uh, Dr. Kumseya's area of expertise is an advanced therapeutic endoscopy, the treatment of pancreatic biliary disease, GERD, Barrett's esophagus, and obesity. Uh, Dr. Kumseya enjoys uh, a national reputation as an expert in the guideline development and chairs the Standards of Practice Committee for the American Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy. Uh, thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the invitation, and I look forward to this discussion. Excellent, excellent. I'll um, I'll kick it to uh, Dr. Brown to get us started. Yeah. Um, once again, welcome, and, and thanks for doing this with us. It's a lot of fun for me at Chuma. It's been a, a neat journey to do this. Um, but a lot of the beginning part of these episodes, we focus actually on your journey. The way this has evolved over time is to sort of look at this as almost a part teach us about the guidelines from an expert who was writing them, but also part inside the actor's studio. So we like to know about the making of you, where you're from, your journey in education, how you pick GI, and importantly, the impact of mentorship, right? Because there are those key people at key moments in time who changed our trajectory and bent it one way or the other. So I, I wanted to start, I saw a lot of education in Wisconsin. Is that right? Yes, yes. Thanks, thanks for the question. I guess uh, as uh, all of us within the field of, uh, of medicine and GI uh, in particular, uh, our journeys are uh, long. So, uh, you know, depends on where you want to start. It's a long journey, but uh, I'll get to the pertinent uh, parts <laughs> of it. Uh, I, did, I did grow up in uh, Bethlehem, uh, Palestine, which is a famous town because Somebody more famous than me was born there many years ago. And uh, so that was my uh, upbringing. Uh, I uh, came to the U.S. for college in, in Wisconsin. And 
that's kind of my Wisconsin connection. Um, eventually did my medical school at St. George's University in uh, Grenada and then came back to the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee for my residency. So that's where I did my residency. And that's uh, where I started applying for uh, GI fellowships. Um, I uh, then went to um, Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville where I did my um, GI fellowship. And I also stayed there for my advanced endoscopy uh, fellowship uh, for one more year. And then during that time, I also attended Harvard uh, School of Public Health and got my master's in public health. Uh, I guess I, I also share um, your enthusiasm about mentoring because I'm a big believer in, in mentoring and yeah. mentorship. In fact, here at uh, UF, we have a program for developing mentors, um, mm. which uh, is called the Mentor Academy. And so I'm um, currently enrolled in that Mentor Academy because I feel very strongly. I personally had um, the blessing of having very good mentors in, in my career, especially in my um, fellowship, who uh, you know had uh, a great impact on, on my career at it, as it is now. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a pertinent example about how that uh, could, you know, mentoring could could change your life. Uh, during during the fellowship, I I was interested in applying for um, this program at Harvard for uh, uh, MPH, and Mike um, uh, Wallace, uh, who was uh, the chief of GI. Mm at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville at the time, uh, and my one of my uh, main mentors was very supportive of that and facilitated me having the time as a fellow to attend this uh, summer program to obtain my MPH. Uh, and during that time, he uh, encouraged me to um, take a course on systematic reviews and meta-analysis. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I took that course uh, there, and then I, I became very active in systematic reviews and meta-analysis, and that became my link to uh, guidelines. So, um, and for the past seven years, I've been uh, having a leading role, including for the last uh, uh, two and a half years, uh, leading guideline development at the ASGE. And I would say that if had had I not gone to to that course, had I not enrolled in the MPH program, I probably would not. Uh, be uh, in doing what I'm doing with uh, with regards to the guidelines. So um, I think decisions that um, you make early on in your career and during your fellowship have and can have a great impact uh, on your future. And having uh, good supportive uh, mentors who uh, should not be your boss. You know, a mentor should be somebody who invested in you. Uh, and uh, in your development um, is is key. So I encourage all. Uh, uh, I mentor a lot of uh, fellows here, uh, and um, I encourage all fellowship programs to have uh, a dedicated mentorship program because I think it's key, it's very key for uh, for the future of uh, our um, gastroenterology fellows and colleagues. That's really great and well said. I appreciate you sharing that about your story. Um, now in, a, in the mentoring academy and, and having had such a significant impact and being on both sides of that, that mentoring relationship, um, when somebody's looking for mentors, you know, you gave some great advice. Don't go to somebody that's a, either a direct supervisor or perhaps a boss. 
Um, but what are some other things? How would they approach looking for people, staying at an institution, going outside the institution, conferences, reaching out, or, or how did it work for you? It seemed like there was an organic connection there. But is there any advice in terms of um, things a potential mentee should look for? And then a second question we can address is, what does it take to be a good mentee? Yeah, I think that's just some very good questions. Uh, so I think, you know, I was lucky in the sense that at Mayo Clinic, they had a mentorship um, program, if you will. So, so they had set up this program where, uh, you know, people who wanted to mentor fellows, you know, attendings, uh, would uh, present their case to the first year fellows and say, okay, you know, here is, if you've worked with me, here's the kind of stuff we can do together uh, and things like that. And then, um, and then, you know, the first year fellows could choose uh, from these uh, presenters and say, okay, well, I'm interested in working with Dr. So-and-so. And so that made it easier for us. Uh, I think having uh, a similar kind of program, and we're trying to make a similar program here at UF, um, so having something like this, I think it starts with uh, uh, the program directors uh, to to take uh, to take a seemingly complex issue and give it some structure. Okay, mm -hmm. so I think that would be the starting point. Now, if you are at a program where there is, and most most places there is no official mentorship uh, or formal uh, mentorship programs, right. uh, and I think I would look, uh, as far as the mentee, I would look for somebody who shares your uh, career interests to start with. So let's say, you know, you are interested in, uh, you know, obesity and endoscopic management of obesity. Obviously, I would maybe start looking in your program for somebody who does that. Because if, if you want to develop your career in that direction, then you need help from somebody who has done it before. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is not the only, uh, you know, unfortunately, not everybody can make a great mentor. And of course, not everybody can make a great mentee. So it, it is possible, obviously, you know, maybe there's nobody in your program who does this particular thing, or maybe they're already involved in, in research and mentoring of other uh, fellows, and they cannot uh, add more. Uh, so, and in this in these cases, I would try to build connections by um, networking with other colleagues and and fellows and, and and getting advice on you know who can mentor. It does not have to be in your program, mm. although it's very helpful if it is in your program because. Um, you know, you can dedicate, you know, like once a month you meet with your mentor and discuss your career goals, discuss your research projects, uh, and discuss networking. You know, a big, a big part of mentorship is uh, your mentor introducing the mentee to, to influential people mm -hmm. or you know, research ideas or uh, organizational roles, um, you know, nominating you to... Um, you know, to be in a committee or uh, to be to lead a hands-on session at one of the national meetings. So to kind of get your name out, because as with everything else, uh, networking is is an important part, and that's an important uh, part of being a mentor and a mentee is to make use uh, of these connections. As far as being a good mentee, I think. Um, you know, being uh, always forthcoming and truthful, truthful about your what your goals are with your mentor uh, yeah. is very helpful. Um, you know, 
don't be afraid to be, you know, to be straightforward and uh, uh, upcoming and say, okay, uh, forthcoming and say, you know, I would like to do this. This is my uh, research goal. This is my career goal. I would like to work in this place. I, you know, sometimes a lot of mentees feel they need to say, well, you know, I want to do academics. I want, you know, especially in an yeah. academic institution, but that's not the case and they're not being disingenuous but they're just you know okay i'm in an academic situation so i better say i want to do academics but yeah. you don't have to do that you know i mean uh it's okay i mean not everybody wants to be in academics and that's fine there's not enough room in academia for everybody so <laughs> that's not the expectation but you know i i i find that as a mentor uh, we're all invested in seeing our mentees succeed because when our mentees succeed, uh, uh, it is like we succeeded as well because it's somebody uh, who we helped. And uh, so it feels good when one of my uh, mentees uh, gets a national recognition or or uh, is nominated to a major committee or any anything uh, positive happens. Uh, it's like this happened to you as well. Yeah. Uh, overall, the mentees... See, the mentors should uh, are, are most of the time and should be invested in your success, and uh, this goes beyond your finishing fellowship. You know, like some of my ma- mentors that I uh, have throughout my career are still my mentors now, even though you know I'm uh, you know applying for a professorship now and uh, you know I'm kind of mid-career to senior, but. Um, you need mentorship uh, throughout your career, and, and those mentors and those connections uh, last a lifetime. You know, you um, you can always go back and ask them uh, questions, uh, and they also benefit from you as well. You know, at some point when you become influential and you've graduated, and you know, and and sometimes your mentors may need your help, uh, and so it's a, it's a, it's a two-way relationship that works really good uh, if it's done right. Oh, it's really nice. Uh, thank you for describing that cycle and that circle, as it were. Um, Chuma, if I've got time for one more question here. Um, you know, you talked about the role of mentorship and connections and getting involved at the national level. Are there other, so we, we have a wide range of listeners, all the way from medical students trying to figure out what they want to do to residents who are interested in applying to fellowship, fellows and junior faculty and beyond. Um, Junior faculty who want to get involved in national committees that, but maybe don't feel like they have a connection, is there any other recommendation you can give to them for wanting to give their time, wanting to volunteer, wanting to be involved? Because it's, it's competitive. There's a few spots and a lot of interest. Yeah, it's very competitive. You're right. So, um, so two things I would say. Um, you can never go wrong by asking. So... Um, Let's say, let's say you know, national committees. Uh, all major societies send out a call for nomination sometime um, during the year. So you'll get an email, let's say, uh, you know, with a national uh, a call for committee service. Uh, so look at those committees. There are many committees, and you may have a skill set that fits better in one committee compared to the other. For example, my skill set is systematic reviews, meta-analysis. With evidence-based guidelines, this fits really well with that kind of work. Uh, but somebody else may have a different kind of skill set. Um, and, for example, the ASGE has over 20 or more committees that he can choose from. Mm-hmm. So start by that. Okay, identify if you want. I, I, I encourage people to get involved because that's how you make connections. That's how you give back to your society. Yeah. 
that's how you improve your, you know, yourself and, and further your career. So to get involved, you say, okay, well, uh, you get the, this call for a committee. Look at them seriously. Uh, look at the, the committees. Uh, each society describes what the role of the committee is, okay? So go read about that committee, okay? What, is, what does that committee do? Uh, is this something that interests me? And then also societies on their websites, they will list who, are, who is the chair of that committee. Mm-hmm. And who are the members of the committee? You know, within the field of gastroenterology, it's a small field. So you eventually will know somebody or somebody in your program will know somebody. Okay? Yeah. And so if you don't know, that you can, we can reach out, uh, uh, apply to those uh, committee positions, uh, reach out to, uh, to your mentors or your uh, supervisors or uh, whoever uh, supports your career and tell them, hey, you know, can you reach out to so-and-so as a president-elect of, you know, AGA or ASG or something, because ultimately they decide the committee assignments uh, on my behalf. So making those connections and making this for yourself, you know, uh, you have you have to advocate for yourself. Uh, that's what I encourage people to do. If you want something done, then you need to do it. You need to try to do it. Yeah. And time if you try to do something um, eventually it will work so if you really want to be on a committee uh, and you are reasonably good uh, you can be on that committee yeah uh, but you just have to take the first step um, and some people don't you don't have to be a fellow or uh, of course it helps I mean the further you are in your career the better uh, but you know, we have some. We have, for example, on the ASGE's committee, on the standards of practice committee, we have a role for a fellow. So we do have a fellow mm-hmm. on our committee who has not graduated uh, every year, but they serve for one year. Uh, there are roles, for example, uh, we just interviewed with somebody who's in residency and is working as a methodologist for the AGA. Mm-hmm. So he's not in fellowship yet, and he's not a gastroenterologist. And he's working as a methodologist because he has a certain skill set. So you can start with these early on. And some and, and some committees have medical students and a presentation of, you know, so it depends on what you're applying to. I'm talking here about GI in specific, but depending other other societies will have different roles for different people in their different stages of their career. So the sooner, if, if this is the kind of thing you like to do, which I recommend for people to do, the sooner you get involved, the better. It helps you make uh, uh, build your career. It helps you make connections. Uh, it helps you, you know, network. <coughs> you know, you go in in these meetings. Yeah, you know, we, we we sit down in a committee meeting. We talk about life. We talk about our research. You know, and that's how we bounce ideas, and and uh, and that's how we create uh, new ideas for research, uh, for career, for collaborations. So it's invaluable, really. Really wonderful advice. I- I appreciate your spending the time talking to us and giving us those insights. I think it's helpful for me and Chuma, obviously, on this uh, podcast and helpful for, for the listeners. So thank you. Chuma, you know, yeah, it's, this is the point where I have to switch gears and throw it to you because I can keep going on and on. The 60 minutes will be up. So uh, we eventually have to get to these guidelines, okay? Um, I, I, have, I, I am curious, though. Um, I guess we've talked a lot about committees and, you know, you are the chair of the standards and practice committee. What do you do on a deal? Like, like in regards to that title, like, are you just kind of like writing guidelines or, or is it, does it go beyond that? Yeah. So it's, uh, uh, right. 
guidelines and and thank you for for discussing this because this is what i i spend a lot of time doing guidelines so uh, we'd like people to to know about it and to raise awareness so writing guidelines has changed even within my time uh, on the guideline committees uh, it used to be that uh, most guidelines were consensus based or based on expert opinion so and you know what really that meant and that had different forms but really what it meant is you know maybe a group of experts got together uh, and said okay what do you think we should do about this topic uh, what do you think oh, I think we should do this so well that's what I do uh, okay maybe we'll do a narrative review let's review the literature uh, it obviously is not a uh, the most um, sophisticated process for doing guidelines and received a lot of, uh, you know, criticism because when you do a narrative review, I'm sure you have been involved in narrative reviews where somebody says, you know, why don't you write a review for us about, you know, malignant thyroid obstruction, okay? Which is what we're talking about today. So, mm -hmm. you know, you'll go do some research, you'll look up some um, articles, maybe you'll find some RCTs, maybe you'll find some cohort studies, Maybe you were uh, yourself part of these studies and no, you want to emphasize them. Uh, maybe you find a big study and you want to emphasize it because, you know, it's uh, got a large number. Um, so it's not really clear how you did it. There's no clear methodology. And um, oftentimes you find conflicting stuff. So you say, well, the data on a use of uh, which type of stent to use is conflicting. Uh, Kumsey and colleagues um, did the study where they think plastic scents are the best. And, you know, so-and-so and colleagues uh, thought that the uh, metal stents are better. And then you, and nobody knows what to do. And so that's obviously not a good way to do it. So things have moved on from that now to what we, uh, a lot of the guidelines we do have to be, obviously, uh, everything we do now is evidence-based. So what does that mean? There are criteria for having an evidence-based uh, guideline. So you have to do a specific search. You have to tell us what you searched, uh, what uh, uh, engines did you use, what terms did you use, when did you use your search, how many citations did you get, what did you do about them, what criteria did you have for inclusion, what criteria did you have for exclusion, and then out of the included studies, how did you analyze them? Okay, So it's a more transparent process, it's a systematic process, and you know what you're doing. And then from there, you take it and, and start synthesizing the, the evidence in what we call evidence profile. So you look at uh, cost effectiveness and you look at patient values and preferences and, and you look at the strength of the uh, evidence and uh, uh, it, gets, it gets rather uh, complex. Uh, and so that's the current process of doing guidelines, uh, and the most common scheme that people use nowadays is called the, the grade uh, uh, scheme, which is a specific kind of system in which we you tell the audience what exactly, how you did your search, uh, what you came up with, you have evidence profile, you rate your evidence up and down, you consider everything else, and then you have a panel and you meet, and, and then you decide, okay, well, what should we do? And then you use a certain... Everybody uses the same, for grade, you use the same language. You either say, we recommend something, which is a strong recommendation, and then, or we suggest something, which is a conditional recommendation. And you could recommend for or against something, or you could recommend for, uh, suggest for or suggest against something. So those are really, uh, this is the way that we, uh, everybody now is trying to standardize uh, guideline development. So 
As far as what we do day to day, you know, I, I field uh, uh, I emails uh, of every day from uh, on different guidelines that we're working on. So we have about, you know, at this time, 10 different guidelines in various stages of development. It takes, from the time we conceptualize a document until we get it published, it takes about two years. And it involves doing, uh, let's say for this, this document there was that we're going to discuss today, we had three questions. So these are called the PICO questions. <coughs> for each PICO question, you have many outcomes. Survival, uh, life expectancy, uh, patency, uh, technical success, clinical success. So all these outcomes. So it's in, in a sense, it's like doing, if you have three PICO questions, it's like doing um, you know, three or four publications about this particular topic. So it's very labor-intensive. And as a chair, I am in charge of organizing all of this, uh, explaining this to new members. Uh, we meet uh, very frequently. About once a week, we, me and, uh, and the liaison on the committee, we will discuss where we are. Okay, here's what we're doing. Here's what we're doing next week. Um, We'll, we'll organize searches, we'll organize our meetings, we'll organize panels. So it's a lot of work goes into doing a guideline nowadays. But I, I hope that, that you will find that uh, the guidelines that we produce and other society produce, the idea is uh, that we want them to be easily uh, implementable, we want them to be relevant to the patients, relevant to you. And we want them to improve outcomes. And there's a lot of data suggesting that when people follow guidelines, the outcomes of patients are improved. So that's ultimately what we hope to do. And I hope that this podcast will help uh, in that, you know, raising awareness about, you know, malignant hyalur obstruction and our guideline about it. That was a fantastic explanation of, I think, the nitty-gritty of kind of creating a guideline and the work that goes into yeah. it. Um, what I... What I think is impressive um, kind of about these guidelines specifically. So we're going to be talking about the ASU guidelines on the role of endoscopy in malignant hyalur obstruction. Um, and um, what's impressive is that they are, um, they're really complex, but they're also very straightforward in a way. You know, you guys really lay out things well. So before I jump into our case, maybe I'll just, I'm going to ask a quick question for clarification, because I thought it was interesting that you guys said malignant hyalur obstruction, because I guess there's, you know, it could be from a number of different, it could be gallbladder cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma, like, you know, maybe in like a general sense, do you do you think about malignant hyalur obstruction differently when it's of different origins? Like, is it totally changing your approach when it's like HCC versus cholangio? Like, how, yeah, I don't know. How, how, how would you generally think about yeah so that's a, that's a very good question so i think the management um uh, as far as uh, different kinds of malignancy and maybe we'll get uh, into this as we go through this case mm-hmm. is is obviously a bit different right so uh if this is um malignant hyalur obstruction uh, due to uh cholangiocarcinoma uh, depending if it's resectable, then obviously, you know, a patient may have surgery. If it's unresectable, maybe then it's palliative. If it's from lymph node uh, metastases, obviously treating maybe it's lymphoma. So that has a different treatment, uh, obviously, than treating cholangiocarcinoma. Maybe it's a gallbladder cancer then is, is pushing on the hilum. And of course, that has a different treatment option. So 
depending on what kind of malignancy does does change what you do. However, uh, as far as uh, draining this uh, uh, lesion, ultimately, yeah, if somebody has obstruction, hyalur obstruction, it needs to be drained to avoid cholangitis and uh, you know pruritus and other issues. And so you do need to drain it. But the question is, what you're dealing with does change your strategy. Where should you drain? How should you drain it? You know, so we talk here in this guideline, we talk about drainage modality. Should you do ERCP or should you do uh, percutaneous drainage or PTBD? Uh, should your drainage strategy be bilateral stents or should it be stent on one side or the other side or one segment, the other segments? And then what kind of stent, so a stent type. So we try to decide, divide it into drainage modality, drainage strategy, and stent type to kind of uh, make it uh, you know, easier for people to, to understand. I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, no, no. That was actually, that was great. Um, so I'm going to jump into the case so we can make all this really concrete, okay? Okay. Uh, so we'll see how this goes. So we have a we have Miss Carsey. <clears throat> uh, she is a, she's a 65-year-old female. Uh, she's transferred to your service from an outside hospital. Um, really for paritis, weight loss, and painless jaundice. Uh, she does have a history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and she's got some kidney disease, maybe stage 3 CKD. Um, just the, I'm not going to go over all her labs, but maybe the pertinent ones because they're coming to you. You know, her AST is 390. Her ALT is 310. You know, her total bilirubin is 14. Alkfos is 650. Um, so, you know, in the they, they got her. She, she initially came yeah, to the medicine service overnight. Someone ordered an, an uh, abdominal ultrasound. And it, it's pretty scant report. It just says, you know, you, there we see intrahepatic, you know, biliary ductal dilatation, but a normal distal CBD. Um, so I guess from there, this very um, skeleton sort of case, um, I guess, yeah, what are, your, what are your general thoughts? And then what questions do you have kind of moving forward, you know, with this case? Yeah, so uh, this unfortunately is a, is a common kind of presentation that comes to our um, biliary service here. And uh, anytime, obviously, we teach medical students, residents, and fellows, anytime you have painless jaundice, it is obviously very concerning for malignancy. It is not always malignancy, but it is uh, something that you have to rule out. Uh, so this patient uh, is in her 60s, which is... Commonly, when people start presenting uh, with cancers, 60s, 70s, 80s, and she's presenting with painless jaundice. Uh, when looking at her labs, you know, you notice that the bilirubin is 14 and ALKFAS uh, is elevated, which goes along with the, with the biliary obstruction. Uh, ALT, AST are also elevated, so, but the transaminase elevation is less than the bilirubin elevation. So the bilirubin is, you know, 14 times what it should be, and uh, ALTST maybe three, four times. So this is, uh, we, we try to teach people, you know, there's, uh, is this predominantly a transaminitis uh, issue or is this uh, a biliary obstruction? And when your bilirubin is uh, uh, very much elevated and your ALT and AST are elevated but not as much, this is mainly a presentation of a biliary obstruction. Now, this is further supported by the evidence that you have uh, dilation in the bile duct. So, you know, 
Bilirubin is going up and the bile ducts are elevated. This means that there is an obstruction somewhere within the, the biliary system. Now, this obstruction can be anywhere and can be for many reasons. You know, uh, here we're talking about uh, in the hilar lesion because they're describing that the distal common bile duct is normal. So, the, the obstruction cannot be in the duodenum or the ampulla or the head of the pancreas, because then you would see intra and extra biliary ductal dilation. Here they're describing intrahepatic biliary ductal dilation. So that is consistent that there is something maybe in the proximal CBD uh, or in the hilar lesion uh, or in one of the segments uh, of the liver, left side or the right side. So um, so those, this is, this is, these are my thoughts. As far as what questions come into mind, um, you know, I think it's always, I, I always teach uh, my uh, residents and fellows and uh, even medical students, uh, everything starts with a proper history. You need to get a good history from the patient uh, because that could change um, what this is about. Does a patient have history of cancers? Um, do they have family history of cancers? Uh, do they have history of surgery? You know, have they had uh, cholecystectomy? Have they had... Uh, uh, you know, because um, um, non-malignant uh, strictures can happen commonly from post-surgical changes. So uh, maybe this uh, this patient had uh, a history of cholecystectomy years ago, was complicated, and maybe now she developed uh, a biliary stricture. Um, personal history of radiation. Sometimes we see radiation changes causing, uh, you know, biliary strictures which are benign. History of pancreatitis. Um, you know, um, even though there's no extrahepatic dilation, pancreatitis is important because, you know, sometimes you can get autoimmune diseases like uh, IgG4 disease that can affect also the biliary tree. And so, you know, thinking about that as well is important. Um, like I said, the manipulation in, of the bile duct previously, history of ERCPs is important. Family history is important as well, you know. Um, it's, you know, it would make you more suspicious if uh, there's, you know, a lot of family members or any family members with GI diseases or malignancies. Um, so that is also important. So those, those are, I think, some of my initial thoughts and questions uh, for this patient. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's a, that's a really actually helpful, pertinent, you know, differential. Um, so let me, I'll fill out, I'm going to fill out some of her history. All that stuff's negative. <laughs> she's got no family history of cancer, never had cancer before. You know, she's never had any abdominal surgeries or prior ERCPs, nothing like that. Um, so I, I guess in this case, you know, in ultrasound typically... I feel like in most cases for advanced folks, it doesn't really cut it. Um, so what, um, yeah, I guess, how do you move this case forward? I mean, what are you, you know, what are you, what are you going to do next to kind of further delineate, you know, what's going on or what are you, yeah, what are you worried about? Um, yeah. So, you know, I think, uh, I agree with you. Ultrasound is not enough, but ultrasound is very helpful. Why? Because sometimes we get this kind of presentation and there is no ductal dilation. Uh, and in which case, you know, we are not thinking that this is a biliary obstruction. A lot of times this happens even uh, in bilirubin in, in higher than 14 in the 20s. Uh, and patients have uh, liver failure, advanced liver disease, stuff like that. So the fact that, you know, you've got ultrasound is actually very helpful information because, you know, we know that there's an obstruction somewhere in the biliary tree. The question is, 
where exactly is it and what exactly is it. So I think the next uh, uh, thing to do would obviously uh, be to get cross-sectional imaging. Now this varies by institution. Some institutions prefer CT scan, a dedicated CT scan, uh, some prefer an MRI with MRCP. Uh, here, uh, I personally find that MRCPs are more helpful because MRCPs uh, are really specific for uh, the biliary system uh, and uh, the pancreatic ducts as well. So it's really helpful to see it can delineate for us Okay, where exactly could uh, this obstruction be? Which segments is it affecting more than other segments? So I think that would be helpful. MRI with an MRCP. However, if you got a CT scan, uh, it would, could also provide to, to be very helpful. Uh, so the bottom line is ultrasound is a good start. Uh, we need cross-sectional imaging. And cross-sectional imaging is also going to help us rule out other diseases. Uh, does this patient have an obstruction but also has metastatic disease from somewhere else? Does this patient have some bulky lymph nodes around the hilum? Uh, does this patient have liver, uh, evidence of uh, uh, liver uh, mets already from a possible cholangiocarcinoma or hepatocellular carcinoma? Does the patient have, you know, undiagnosed cirrhosis? Uh, does the patient have ascites? Um, so there's a lot of things that you need to rule out and that the CT and or MRI uh, will be of great help to take us to the next step. Because sometimes you come in and this, you know, the patient comes in and then you do a CT scan and there's disease everywhere. You know, it's not a very happy uh, ending, unfortunately, but that's not uncommon. So uh, cross-sectional imaging should be done next, either CT or, or MRI with MRCP. Okay, perfect. All right. So, uh, yeah, so you get an MRCP, okay? So it notes a solitary 2.5 by 2.1 lesion at the hilum uh, with dilated and thickened intrahepatic biliary ducts. There's asymmetric upstream dilation in the intrahepatic bile ducts. They said the right system maybe appears more dilated than the left. Um, also, the left side of the left liver lobe appears slightly enlarged, um, and then the uh, the lesion appears to be invading the the portal vein. Um, the radiologist says high concern for malignancy. Um, I guess what in, in an ideal scenario, I'd be showing you an MRI image and turning it and twisting it, you know. But we <laughs> we don't have that capability in this in this case, uh, so you're gonna have to. I guess take my word for it. Um, yeah, I guess what are your thoughts on the imaging? And then, you know, I guess there's always a question in this case, like if we're worried about malignancy, there are questions about resection and transplants start coming in. Um, how do you how do you figure out all those things, you know, at, at once? I don't know. So a very good question, you know. So what I think everybody should start uh, here is by reviewing the cross-sectional imaging and actually, in our guideline, we have a table too, which is general concepts about management, you know, things that don't need a lot of evidence that you need to do. Uh, and the first one says review cross-sectional imaging, uh, and the emphasis should be on the volume of the liver assessment, So, which is what you mentioned, that the volume of the liver on the left side is enlarged. So that, that indicates that the, the liver on that side is more viable. So you want to try to preserve that side because that side is enlarged. 
uh, versus it doesn't say here, but you could find a segment that is atrophic. When a segment is atrophic, it essentially is um, not as useful to drain anymore because there's not much viable liver tissue there. So you want to try to review this and see what they're talking about for yourself and focusing on, okay, okay, the left side looks more enlarged. So that is really, when it's large, it's got a lot of tissue to it. So that's really what I'm, I need to drain that side because potentially that's uh, that's the side that could, you know, be the functional liver for this patient if the patient has a right hepatectomy. Um, so that's uh, the first thing is to, to review the cross-sectional imaging. The second thing is, and we that's number two in our general concepts, is to discuss this in, in a multidisciplinary fashion. So uh, clearly you don't have a diagnosis yet, uh, but it does not hurt to get your surgeons involved at this time because ultimately they are the ones to decide resectability. At this point, we are suspicious that this is a cholangiocarcinoma. We don't have a confirmation yet, but that's what it looks like. It looks like a cholangiocarcinoma, malignant uh, uh, obstruction, most likely uh, cholangiocarcinoma. We haven't seen mention of uh, gall, uh, gallbladder cancer. We haven't seen mention of lymph nodes. We haven't seen any mention of outside cancer. So we're working the, our working diagnosis here, although it's not confirmed, is a cholangiocarcinoma. So at this point, I would get the the, the surgeons involved, uh, as well as discuss this with the radiologist, uh, review the images yourself, and then make a plan. Uh, if the um, surgeons outright, because of the portal vein involvement, let's say, well, you know, this is not resectable at this time, then, you know, uh, that changes your management. Uh, or if they say, well, we think if you, know, if you drain them, it may need new adjuvant therapy, and potentially they could be resectable, then again, this, this could change uh, what you do. So uh, ultimately, since we're not the surgeons, we don't decide on resectability as much. So working with a team that does is important. You could get your oncologist involved as well, but as you know, they like to have a tissue diagnosis uh, before, uh, so I think they're not as critical at this point when you don't have the tissue diagnosis. More important at this point is getting the surgical team involved and getting their ideas. You know, this obviously is, like I said, concerning for carcinoma, and in terms of bismuth classification, this would make it uh, bismuth 3A, where there is more obstruction of the right side. Uh, and then the left side, uh, although the left side is viable. Um, so those are my thoughts about what you should do at this time. Okay, nice, nice. Okay, Put so. yourself, uh, talk to uh, your team, and uh, start deciding wh- how are we going to drain this and what's the best strategy to drain it. Okay, so let's say, um, let's say surgery is consulted, uh, they are, you know, you, you, you chat with them and they just say, hey, look, you know, given the portal vein involvement, it, it looks like it's fully effaced in the portal vein. We're, 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 we can't, you know, we, we don't think this person's um, surgically resectable at this time. Maybe, maybe, you know, neoadjuvant chemotherapy might help us. So, but they're saying not a surgical candidate. Um, you know, but <laughs> I don't want to totally jump us down and get derailed in the diagnosis of cholangiocarcinoma because I know we could spend a lot of time there. Um, I, cause I, I'm just, I, I guess I'm curious, like, you know, 
even if this person's going gonna to undergo chemotherapy, they always, usually oncology wants the bilirubin, you know, below four, below three, you know, whichever day of the week you are. Um, so I guess how do you approach this ERCP given that you don't have a full diagnosis, you know you want to undergo drainage, and let's say maybe I'll throw in the transplant team, kind of saw them, they said not a transplant candidate for XX reasons. Um, yeah, yeah. How do you? Because there's a couple of different things at play here. So I'm curious. Um, you know, yeah. How do you approach this procedure? What other things do you need beforehand? Yeah, this is very good. I think uh, you said the first thing. Uh, uh, you said, well, well, how do you approach the ERCP? So you made the assumption that we're going to do an ERCP. Uh, it's the right assumption to make. Uh, I would say. Uh, but you know, in starting with this, uh, the, the real question is, what is the drainage modality? Should we do an ERCP? or should we do uh, percutaneous drainage? And that's a pertinent question. There are actually uh, randomized trials about this. And I think most people jump to, to the conclusion, rightfully so, that we should proceed with an ERCP. But in this guideline, uh, on our third recommendation, that uh, if the patient is potentially operative, which you said this is the case, then we suggest against routine PTBD. So we would suggest again, again, proceeding with percutaneous drainage before attempting ERCP. And the reason being is uh, there, uh, there is data from randomized trials to suggest that um, patients have worse uh, survival if they have a PTBD. Um, um, immediate survival, meaning with the short-term uh, and long-term. And they also have uh, long-term, if they do make it long-term, they have tumor seeding uh, from the PTBD. So our guideline would say that if they are potentially operative, which we are going with this uh, assumption in this patient, the first thing to say is we are, we're not going to start with PTBD. And I think that's important uh, to do. Um, so that's number one. So, okay, we're not going to do PTBD. Instead, we are going to proceed with an ERCP. So I think we've, we've made that right decision. So the next question is, okay, in the ERCP then, there is two, two questions is, what is your drainage strategy? Which sides are you going to drain? Where are you going to target? And how would you do that? Would you do plastic stent or would you use metal stents? Um, and I think that kind of goes along with the diagnosis because we actually have an upcoming guideline specifically dedicated for the diagnosis. It's how do you actually diagnose this? The idea is that at the same time you're draining them, you're also getting the diagnosis. Hopefully that this happens at the same time, right? So you can't really separate the issues uh, too much, uh, regardless of your diagnosis, because at the time you do a biopsy or brushing, you're not going to have the diagnosis, uh, but you have to drain them at the same time. So I say, uh, I'm thinking, okay, well, this patient needs an ERCP uh, sooner than later. Uh, and um, I'm thinking to myself, okay, we really have to drain that left side uh, if, you know, because we want to save that left side. Uh, this is potentially, potentially resectable in the future. Uh, so we do not want to burn any bridges, and we really would like to avoid any adverse events. So that's kind of what's going through my mind at this time. Okay, okay. So that's uh, so that's that's great. That's great. So maybe we should, um, you know, maybe we'll hold this patient in our head, and then maybe we can just talk about you know metal versus plastic stents, 
I'm going to totally run away from, you know, any cytology or cholangioscopy just because that's not really the focus of this guideline. So I really want to talk about, you know, stenting. So, um, so put the patient aside and say, so maybe when it comes to a plastic stent, um, who, who's the ideal candidate for a plastic stent? And, you know, uh, when do you prefer it over metal stents? Yeah, so that's good. That's uh, that's the focus of the first uh, question we had in this guideline, uh, which is you know really the stent type. So what uh, what stent type is ideal? Uh, and the, the two uh, ones that we have uh, are and that have been studied and, and published in the, uh, in this guideline are the self-expandable metal stents. And the three RCTs we reviewed here uh, discussed patients who had uh, uncovered stents. So those are not not removable stents, uh, those are permanent stents, compared to to plastic stents. Um, so the factors that we talked about, resectability uh, is important, uh, but also, you know, patient values. Does the patient, is the patient okay with coming every two to three months to replace plastic stents? Because some patients may say, you know what, I live far away. I really do not want to come back every two, three months. Um, this, uh, I'm told this is not resectable, so just, you know, I want the stent that would last at the most. So those those cases, uh, you know, you know, metal stents uh, are better. Um, location is also a factor because we don't have, uh, we have longer plastic stents than we do metal stents. So sometimes if... If the obstruction is further up and we don't have a metal stent that can reach it, then obviously we have to go with that. So availability of the stent is important. Location of the obstruction is important. Uh, so those are all different factors that I'm thinking about. If if we are not sure where which segments we need to drain, uh, then I'm thinking about putting a plastic stent because they are a lot easier to use. If the patient is um, resectable, then I'm thinking, okay, well, let's put a plastic stent while we get a diagnosis, and then we can uh, decide what to do next. If they're resectable and we have a cancer, then, uh, uh, you know, maybe we don't need to put those uh, permanent metal stents. So those are the things that are going into my, in my mind when I'm thinking about them. And, and the guideline uh, basically says if you have a short life expectancy, then maybe put a metal stent and patient doesn't want to come back a lot. Uh, if you're not sure which segments you're trying to drain, then put a plastic stent and keep your options open because you want to come back and exchange those and drain every, all the segments if possible. Or if in either of those cases, then uh, then you can place either one. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so maybe this is a for for metal stents. Um, you know, let's say I mean, let's say you place let's say let's say you place the metal stent. How how long? I mean, are you expecting a metal stent to last? And, yeah, like, what do you do when it occludes, like, um, assuming yeah. it's uncovered? Yeah. Yeah. So this is actually an important uh, discussion we had in the panel because we had three randomized trials on this. And they actually showed um, that metal stents have higher patency rates, have um, higher survival rates, have lower re-intervention rates and higher rates of drainage success. Now, I'll, I'll touch on drainage success here because it's important. In most studies, we define drainage success as 
decrease or uh, decreasing the bilirubin to 75% of what it started or normalization in four weeks. So a lot of times we do an ERCP and it's like two weeks later and the bilirubin is half, you know, from 20 to 10 and they're like, ah, this tent is not working. We're like, no, it's working, you know, <laughs> you know give it another two weeks uh, because, you know, you don't normalize your bilirubin over time. Sometimes people want to see it. Um, and if it does happen overnight, fine, you know, this is great. But if it doesn't happen overnight, uh, most studies would define um, uh, success, uh, clinical success, has decreased by 75% at four weeks or normalization at four weeks. Uh, and so um, metal stents in these studies were associated with higher patency rate, lower intervention rate, higher rates of drainage success, higher survival. But a lot of the criticism that um, uh, we had in the panel was um, that these um, uh, you know, the patients are living longer than than before. Uh, these stents will get will get occluded if the patient lives more than you know uh, six months. Uh, to, definitely in a year, they will be occluded. You will need to go back, and you cannot remove them obviously because they're uncovered. So you have to put another stent inside them and stuff like that. And so that was one idea. The other the other uh, discussion was that a lot of these patients who had plastic stents in these trials did not come back to, in scheduled intervals, and maybe the survival was better because they were not scheduled to come back every three months or something like that. Um, and so the bottom line is there's good data from randomized trials that uh, metal stents in unresected, this is all unresectable palliative cases, um, uh, metal stents uh, have, may have survival, definitely have higher patency rates, uh, lower re-intervention rates, higher rates of training success. And so, you know, we made uh, a conditional recommendation saying, you know, if you have a short life expectancy, you know, six months or so, and uh, and or the patient doesn't want to keep coming back, uh, then, uh, you know, uh, placing the metal stent uh, is probably the right thing to do. However, if they're going to live longer than six to 12 months, um, then you probably will know that they will likely get occluded and they will need another uh, another ERCP. But if we do place a, an uncovered stent, usually we don't set, uh, you know, to bring them back on uh, a scheduled time, but we wait for them uh, <coughs> to have an obstruction. And unfortunately, many of them die before they have another obstruction. If you do put a plastic stent, however, you have to bring them back in two to three months to replace them because, you know, they will get occluded. Yeah, and is the I mean, I mean, I guess after you've you know instrumented a duct, I guess the concern is always that you might develop col like cholangitis if they get occluded, and whatnot. Are there other concerns that you guys are worried about? Exactly. So, um, so we say that you should. Uh, we one of the aims is to drain about fifty percent of the viable non-atrophic liver, and also try to drain all injected biliary segments. So we try to avoid uh, uh, or limit the injection of contrast, as we say in, in our general concept table, uh, point number three, says limit contract, uh, contrast injection. Because if you do inject a duct or segment of the duct and you're not able to drain it, you definitely can have cholangitis. And uh, cholangitis uh, is one of the most common reasons people die uh, with this disease is because they get cholangitis, uh, which can be, as you know, life-threatening. So uh, our goal is not to inject too much contrast, but then once we do an injection, if we do inject into a ductal system, uh, you have to make all attempts to try to drain it during that ERCP uh, to avoid uh, risk of, of, uh, risk of uh, cholangitis. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yeah, okay, okay. So uh, I want to get to this topic of unilateral versus bilateral stenting. Um, I, I don't, I'm not, I've seen a lot of ERCPs a fair amount. Um, it seems like it's easier, and maybe just some common sense, it's easier to get a stent into one than it is to get into both uh, the ducts. Or, I mean, I guess depending on the right side, if we're talking about anterior posterior, but like, um, yeah, I don't know. Can you can you talk to us about how you guys, why bilateral is like, is better or, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, a very good question, and that's uh, uh, the question we had uh, for uh, drainage strategy. And our guidelines said we suggest bilateral stints. Now, we recognize that there's really not just right and left, but you know you have left, but right anterior and right posterior. Which is called segmental, uh, you know, and sometimes it's not as easy to tell uh, uh, right anterior and right posterior. Uh, it used to be that the, the traditional teaching is as long as you drained one side, if you wish, of the liver, you should be fine. But uh, there is a lot of data that we highlight um, in in this guideline uh, that bilateral stents are associated with uh, increased survival, and by bilateral means you put one on the left end one on the right, regardless right anterior or right posterior, uh, associated with increased survival, uh, increased duration of patency, and successful drainage. Again, we talked about successful drainage as decrease in the bilirubin by 75% at four weeks or normalization of the bilirubin. So if you drain um, not just one side, you're more likely to have successful drainage. Your actually survival has uh, was improved likely because of uh, people dying less from cholangitis, and the duration of stent patency is increased. However, as we did note in our evidence uh, profile, there is a lower technical success rate. So it is obviously more challenging uh, to be on uh, uh, on more than one side. Uh, um, just because of technical challenges, we can't really control the direction of the wire very easily, um, although we try to manipulate the scope and things like that. And sometimes, regardless of what you try, you cannot really get it to one side uh, of, of this or one segment. Um, so there, there is lower technical success rate. However, most people who attempt to do it, and more than 75% of the time, they are successful in, in accessing uh, both sides. But we did not find um, any difference in adverse events uh, between those two uh, strategies. And as far as cost, it doesn't really, it does add some time, but doesn't really add too much uh, to the cost of an existing uh, procedure. So overall, we find good reasons to recommend um, bilateral standing. We made this a conditional recommendation, not a strong recommendation, even though we have strong evidence for it. And because, you know, not everybody is has the expertise to do that, you know. So maybe at a tertiary center, like here at the University of Florida, um, you know, where we have more time to, to do cases, we have more equipment, we have, we do, you know, a thousand ERCPs a year, so uh, that's not, may not be as much of an issue, but maybe for your community practice, uh, who does, you know, much lower volume, uh, who may or may not have gone through the training for this, but doesn't see a high volume of this kind of disease. Uh, making this a strong recommendation could have put in a lot of uh, burden on those places because if they're not doing it now, they're not following the guidelines. So the panel decided to make this a conditional recommendation. However, if you have the know-how, 
the expertise uh, um, um, to do this, then the panel uh, of the ASGE would recommend that you uh, suggest that you try to drain more than one segment. If you can drain all three segments, uh, that's good. But at least try to have a stent on the left side and a stent on the right side. Now, if you have uh, a segment that is atrophic, meaning let's say you know the left side, which is not the case in this thing, but let's say the left side is, is completely atrophic, you do not want to try to drain that because there is no use in doing that and you could uh, predispose the patient to adverse events. But if and no, no, and nothing is obviously atrophic and there's viable tissue, uh, on on one on either side, then you should try to drain that area if possible. Yeah, are there? I mean, just <clears throat> out of curiosity, like, um, are you when you're looking for atrophic areas of the liver? Are, are you mostly? Is it from an assessment you're making from an MRI, or are there are there like other imaging techniques that can be done to really nail down in like a a really objective way, you know, areas of the liver that look that are atrophied versus not. Yeah, mostly segmental, uh, segmental, uh, uh, cross-sectional. I mean, imaging, either CT scan or an MRI. And but, but in your review, you want to be looking for that. You know, you ask the radiologist. You want to review it yourself. You know, uh, is there atrophy of a, a certain segment? You know, and sometimes we see marked atrophy. With you know, I said the left side is almost completely gone. Uh, and it's it's not worth it to try to drain that segment, and it's actually more risky to try to drain it. So we say, um, to, you know, avoid uh, um, injection and attempted drainage uh, in that atrophic segments of the liver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so that's great. So, um, all right, so let's go back to the case for a sec, okay? Um, let's say that you're able to get bilateral plastic stents um, in the right and the left system. Um, and the next day, you know, the bilirubin goes from 14 to 12. Um, uh, and the team calls and they say, you know, Hey, the bilirubin's still high. You know, uh, we're worried. When do we call, when do we call IR to help us, you know, in case you guys weren't able to, to drain the whole liver? Um, how do you, what do you say to them? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not uh, it's not uh, uncommon. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, usually it's not the next day though. Uh, <laughs> maybe a few days. Uh, sometimes you can see even a transient uh, elevation of the bilirubin after the ERCP. So maybe in this case it went from fourteen to fifteen the next day. Remember, you are just in the liver. You are manipulating the bile ducts. You are placing stents. You are biopsying. You are brushing. You are doing all kinds of stuff. It is not uncommon to see some um, transient elevation or worsening in the LFTs after an ERCP, in this case or in any other case. So, uh, as, as I said, and all studies define, now, you know, if it keeps going up uh, for the next week, then that's not good. But if it goes up for a couple of days and then starts trending down, then that's fine. So, I, I would, and because, as we said, you know, uh, PTBD is associated with adverse events, um, and including worsening survival, I would avoid that until you have given enough time. So usually two to three weeks would have given you enough time to see where the trend is going. If if you are at you know started at fourteen and now two weeks later you are at seven, you know I would say that's pretty adequate response. 
okay? And I would wait the two more weeks. So we'd wait two more weeks, and that would be the four weeks. And at that time, if you have gone down by 75%, you know, say you started at 10 and now you're like two and a half, your bilirubin is not normal, but this is actually, uh, you know, clinical success. Um, and, uh, you know, further drainage by PTBD is not going to be of any help. So I would caution, and the guideline does caution against these uh, situations, you know. Uh, clear, uh, people don't understand this definition of, of uh, clinical success. You know, we talk about technical success, which is, you know, could you stent the area that you wanted to stent? Could you do the ERCP? And clearly, most of the time, we can do that. But then the clinical success is how people don't know that the definition is what we said. And uh, we need to educate people. Hopefully, this guideline will educate people that most studies look at four weeks, 75% decrease. Now, in some cases, if you start with a bilirubin of, of 20 and you decrease 75, you're still at five. The oncologists are not very happy. They're like, you know, uh, we cannot start chemotherapy and stuff like that. We want the bilirubin to go down. Um, which is uh, which is a valid concern. So if it's been more than more than uh, four weeks and the bilirubin is, is now stuck, it's reasonable. You have plastic stents instead of bringing them in two months. You know, you could bring them sooner, maybe dilate further, maybe use bigger stents. You know, the idea is to use uh, the bigger diameter stents as you could at the initial time. But you know, sometimes these structures are very very tight. You know, these cancers. Um, uh, make really tight structures, and sometimes putting a 10 French stent, which is the largest kind of plastic stent we use, not feasible. So you end up with a, a 7 a French stent, which is obviously going to drain less. So, you know, you could always, uh, uh, you know, go up on it, dilate more, and hopefully put bigger stents. But we do recommend if you are putting plastic stents to use uh, big, the biggest stent that you could use in terms of diameter. So the largest diameter being 10 French uh, in most cases uh, is recommended if you can do that. If you cannot do that, then a 7 French uh, may or may not do the job, but if you, that's the only thing you can do, then that's what you have to do. Okay. So, okay, I love it. I love it. Um, that, I'm not going to, I'll, I'll half resolve the case. Let's just say that, you know, you, uh, the next couple of days, her Billy Rubin trends down to like, you know, two. Uh, she's discharged. Bob just came back for cholangiocarcinoma. Um, and you set her up for an appointment in, you know, two months to, to have them exchanged. Um, so I do want to leave it there. Uh, I want to say thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. For people who are, I guess, are just getting maybe by happenstance, they're living under a rock, you know, and they just they just happen to hear your voice for the first time on this podcast. Um, how can they follow the, your work? How can they follow you? You know, how can they you know, keep up with what you're doing? Yeah, no, thank you so much. Uh, so I'm, I'm uh, starting to get active on uh, on Twitter. I'm not as savvy as you are, uh, but I do a decent uh, uh, number of followers on Twitter. And uh, one of my most recent uh, my most recent tweets had uh, you know like thirteen thousand which I'm not sure if that's a lot or not, but, you know, I really thought it's a lot. So uh, you can, <laughs> can follow me on Twitter if you just search my name, Bashar Kumseya, you can follow me on Twitter. I try to post, uh, you know, some pictures, some videos about some of the things that we do that may be different, and also um, the guidelines. All of our guidelines come on all, all the social media outlets, and I try to share them as well uh, on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, um, 
Facebook and, and, and elsewhere. Remember, all the ASGE guidelines are available for free. Sometimes I get requests for guidelines, uh, but people don't really, you don't have to have a subscription to GIE, which is where these come out, to access any of our guidelines. You know, we've ha we have a deal uh, with, uh, with GIE and all of them are published free. So if you go to the ASGE website or just uh, hit, you know, search for ASGE guidelines, you'll go to the guideline website. And then there you can find all of our guidelines from inception until now. Some of the guidelines we do retire if we have an update. Uh, but uh, all other guidelines are available there. Um, if you have any questions, we do try to make this process very transparent. Uh, we have a public comment period. You, uh, everybody who is a member of ASG gets invited to make comments on our guidelines before we publish them. So, for example, right now we have a guideline coming up on um, post-ERCP pancreatitis and it came for public comments. And then, uh, so everything before going to the final um, uh, approval by the governing board of the ASGE goes and to public comments. So that's one of the things, one of the changes I made um, along with our previous chair. And now it's uh, we do that for all the guidelines. So you have time uh, before we publish the guideline to make uh, comments, uh, public comments. Uh, of course, the chair of the standards of practice is always the corresponding author. So you can reach me via email. My email is in all the guidelines at the end where it says, you know, corresponding author. You can uh, reach me easily uh, there. And we're all very receptive. We want to see how people use our guidelines. Uh, how uh, we can make them better. Uh, we recently made a, a change in our guidelines and that now we publish them in two uh, uh, documents. One is a summary document, which is really just a summary of the recommendations. And we'll sometimes have a graphical recommendation abstract like you've seen in this guideline. So really, if you look at the graphical abstract, you can just kind of see what you need to do and you know not have to read the rest of it, although we a bit because we spend a lot of time doing it but um, everybody's busy so that's fine so we'll have a table one that has all the recommendations we sometimes will have the graphical abstract which will have all the recommendations and we want to make it as easy for you to access it it's available for free and again you can reach me um, um, on my Twitter feed, you can reach me on uh, on Facebook, you can reach me on LinkedIn, you can reach me by email, which is available on our guidelines. That is fantastic. So, um, as you guys have heard, Dr. Kunsaya, uh <laughs> very approachable. Uh, so, I just want to say thank you for coming on the show. And, uh, yeah, we are officially signing off. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Hang on to your hats, y'all. Medicine is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the accuracy of the material presented and realize that medicine is constantly changing, not to mention that art comes along with science. In a recording conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be understood or construed to be professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credentialed medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor does it engender a physician-patient relationship. This podcast could, should not be considered as replacement for the services of a licensed, trained physician or healthcare professional. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. No author or guest of this podcast shall be held liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any damage you may suffer as a result of failing to see competent medical health advice from a professional that's familiar with your situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a, quote, standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for witness testimony. The views, opinions, and beliefs expressed in this podcast are those of the commentators alone, and we make no guarantee about the accuracy of the statements or opinions put forth. 
This podcast and its contents do not necessarily state or reflect the views, opinions, and beliefs of any employer, company, medical society, or other entity with which the host or guests are affiliated, professionally or otherwise. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do not accept any advertising money. Reference within the podcast and specific commercial product, process, services by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or other does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement or recommendation. Basically, this podcast is solely educational and don't sue us. All right. See you next time, guys.